How many Shine Kids parents are in the room today? Wave at me. I got to let you know there's a lion downstairs right now, but there are also a lot of Daniels. I just walked through. I saw the lion. I saw more Daniels. The lion's outnumbered. He's outnumbered. Let's pray. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for your word. And thank you for those who've brought it to us in our life. And thank you to those who, from the very beginning, eyewitnesses and servants of it, handed it down and paid the ultimate price. We give you thanks and praise for that and pray you'd open our heart to hear the living word of God and the story of Jesus. We thank you for it. In his name, amen. We're in the Gospel of Luke, second message. Um, the gospel for all the people, that's, that's, that's the focus I want to have. This is message number two. I'm calling it Luke on a need-to-know basis. Message number two, um, why, uh, why Luke was last week. Um, a little bit about Luke, who he was and who, who he is. Because, um, you know, when you, when you die in Christ, you're still alive. You, don't, you never become a was. You, you going to help me today? You here? Anybody here this morning? Wave at me if you're here. Wake your neighbor up. Slap him a good one. Give him a Valentine's slap. No, no, I'm just kidding. This gospel doesn't tell us who the writer is in it, but tells us why the writer wrote it. But all of church history attributes this gospel to a man named Luke without much argument. The Muratorian Canon, which was uh, a, a, a gathering in 180 AD, uh, this, made this statement. The third book of the gospel, according to Luke, Luke, that physician who after the ascension of Christ, when Paul had taken him with him as a companion of his journey, composed in his own name on the basis of report. That was in AD 180 at a meeting. Now, my New Testament survey prof at Southeastern U, he was also solidly convinced that Luke wrote Luke. He didn't show up at the 180 meeting, but he said it too. He thought they were right. Luke's bio, just a short one. Luke was a non-Jew. He was a Gentile. He was uh, raised in the Greek-Roman culture, not from a Jewish heritage. And he later became a traveling companion of Paul, and it's noted in the 16th chapter of Acts, of which Luke was also the author. He wrote Acts, and he also wrote Luke, and the same person he wrote to is mentioned in the first chapter of both, Theophilus. Same author, who later in the book of Acts describes the story of Paul's missionary journey, and he shifts from talking about they did this, they did that, to we. In Acts chapter 16, verse 8, he says, So they passed by Mysia and went to Troas, and during the night Paul had a vision of a man from Macedonia standing and begging come over to Macedonia and help us. And after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready and at once went. And we concluded that God was calling us to them. So from that point, Luke was an eyewitness of the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And later, when Paul was in prison, first in Caesarea and then in Rome, during that time, Luke went back to Israel, Jerusalem, and heard from eyewitnesses and talked to eyewitnesses about the happening of Jesus, and that's Luke. What else do we know of Luke? We know he was a doctor, and also he was really deeply bonded in friendship to the Apostle Paul. Paul mentions Luke in two of his prison letters. He wrote more than two. But in Colossians 4, he says, our dear friend, Luke the doctor, sends greetings. And then in the last letter that Paul wrote, and no one knows the time frame from the time he finished 2 Timothy to the time he was executed under Nero, executed, he writes these words, only Luke is with me. Now, before we get into chapter 1, I want to, as if we are taking a journey along the uh, our, our trail, our CNO trail that we can take from here to Pittsburgh or we can take from here to DC. 
And let's say we're all on that journey. This is our first stopping point. I want us to stop right here at this moment. I want to, I'm going to have different pause moments in weeks to come. Here's our first one, big point. We're on a journey. It's a journey. This story of God's Savior in, in, the, in the Gospel of Luke everybody, in the, and in the Acts, everybody's going somewhere. Notice this. Act one is Luke the acts of Jesus and his followers. Act two is acts, the acts of the Holy Spirit in the lives of those who were filled with the Holy Spirit in the upper room, and from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, they went on a journey. In act one in the Gospel of Luke, from the very beginning, the angels show up and they go somewhere, right? They go to Mary, they go to Zechariah, They go to the shepherds, and those who saw the angels, they go somewhere, because everybody's on a journey in Luke. Luke tells us Jesus is going on journeys, right? Mary and Joseph, with Jesus in Mary's belly, went on a journey to Bethlehem, right? And then, when Jesus is born, eight days later, they go on a journey to the temple in Jerusalem to dedicate him to the Lord. As a teenager... They go on another journey to Israel, to Jerusalem, and as a teenager, Jesus is in the temple, right? And they forget him. We never want to lose Jesus in the house of the friends of God. We don't. To the wilderness for baptism, and then into the wilderness, he's on a journey to encounter the devil. And then back, he starts his ministry in Capernaum in the Galilee. And then from the middle of the Gospel of Luke, in the middle, From the very middle to the end, Luke dives in really deep and begins to focus on the final journey to the cross. It actually says, and from this moment on, Jesus sets his heart toward Jerusalem. After he is resurrected, where do we find him? He's on a journey. He's walking on the Emmaus Road. He's always going somewhere. In the Acts account, People are always journeying too. The beginning of Acts, it's about Peter's journeys. I was listening to the story yesterday about him going to Cornelius' house. But then Luke focuses in on this young man named Saul of Tarsus, who meeting the risen Lord on the way to Damascus, going somewhere, going the wrong way. Any of you ever been going the wrong way and then Jesus intercepted you? Thanks be to God, huh? Thanks be to God. Have you ever been thinking you're going the right way? And Jesus intercepts you, and you go, wow. Have you ever had goosebumps come on you when you stop and think how close you were to really living on dumb, dumb street for the rest of your life? And Jesus intercepted you? Come on, anyone here? I, was, I wasn't saved before I got saved. How about you? <laughs> Good night, a living. Well, Paul was on his way to somewhere. And Jesus met him, and Paul gets set on fire, and he's running from there on by the power of the agape love of God, saying, the love of Christ constrains me, and from village to village, he went foot by foot, and then he set sail to faraway places, always on a journey. And you know, if you read the letters of Paul, if you read the letters in the last chapters of those letters, you find that Paul has nothing but affection for the friends who sent him and went with him. True? I'm making a point before we go to the first chapter. This is such a huge point. We're, we're at a stop-off point. We're on our road. We're going we're gonna to walk through Luke. We're on our road stopping you off right here. I just want to say something so important. I want to ask you to do something. In, in your imagination, you, you who are following Jesus, you've been following him for a little while, you've been following him for a long while, and maybe some of you have actually been involved in some kind of ministry that's known in the church or in this church, Everybody should be a minister, but there's a ministry and there are people in your circle of life. I want to ask you to take a look around your journey. The bonds we share as traveling companions on this journey of life are meant to last forever in Christ. Good friends, you you have a friend like this? Something good happens in your life? Like you are the person that won the 70, 790 mil, and you haven't told anybody yet, You're you're in here. You in here? You watching live stream? No. I understand why you wouldn't want to tell that. 
All of a sudden, people who hated you all of a sudden love you. Hey, what are you doing this week? Anyway, the bonds we share as traveling companions on this journey are meant to last forever in Christ. And when you have a good friend in the journey and God's doing something in your life, you know what you want to do? You want to ring them up. You want to call them. You want to tell them, say, hey, guess what God's doing in my life? I want you to experience with me the details because, boy, do I have a story to tell, right? Isn't that right? Isn't it great? Even in the story of Jesus, when he'd do something awesome, he'd say, now, don't go tell anybody. What did they do immediately? And immediately they went and told everybody. Because that's the way it is. Don't miss this big point. Paul says, our dear friend Luke, the doctor sends greeting. Only Luke is with me. As Paul was cast as a certain type of person in the eyes of the empire and the Jewish leaders, troublemaker, false teacher, cult leader, you know, people who carry the gospel correctly create enemies as well as friends. It's impossible to not. Jesus didn't have everybody singing his praises. The priesthood and the Roman authorities, they told a different story about Jesus than the apostles told about Jesus. I've been in ministry for 32 years. Been here for 27. I've done some good things in my ministry. And then there's been times that I've been knuckleheaded. But by the grace of God, I've had friends who've stuck with me through it because even though at times I've been a knucklehead, I've been their knucklehead. I'm not sure what that meant. But it's Roberta, so it's always good. But then there have been people who've walked with me who've been knuckleheads at times too, but they've been my knucklehead friend. Have you ever had somebody that just kind of got crossways with you, but because you had that bond, you knew you were going to work it out, but other people started ragging on them, and you thought, wait a second, and it kind of woke you up to get back on the right course with them because you thought, wait a minute, I was getting sideways with them, but I, I love this guy. I don't know what you, I love this person. Raise your hand if you're tracking with me. Raise your hand. Ra- Let me see you live stream. You raise your hand. Comment. Say, that really hit home with me. I don't care what else you say today. That's what I'm supposed to take out of here. Make a list, listen, make a list of names of those who in your last moments of your life or your sad moment or even in your crash and burn moment, you can pretty much guarantee they will be the and only blank is with me. If you have one name you can put in that blank, you're a rich person. By the time this thing was done with Paul, every church he had raised up was Judaized and perverted by false teaching. Everybody had deserted him except Luke. And when he died, he was hoping to have a coat and his books and that Timothy would get there before it all went down. The devil could have screamed at him and said, you got nothing. You don't have a successful church. You don't have any viewers on live stream. Nobody has any Instagram likes for your posts. You're a failure. You know what he said? I have fought a good fight. You know what? If we get to the end of days and we have a sweet spirit and we still love people and we have a couple friends left, you're a champion of the faith. Write that down. Do you still have a deep bond with your traveling companions? Hold your friends close and your traveling companions closer, even to the end. Because the righteousness of God that we all say we are under because of the finished work of Jesus, which we are if we believe it, is deeply relational. Not positional, relational. The righteousness we're going to see in the ministry of Jesus is all about relationships. It's not about right and wrong and blasting up and blowing up friendships over your rightness and their wrongness. It's about relational bond with people who aren't necessarily right in moments. Don't forget that. 
That's just our first pause. Let's move into it now. Here's what we know about Luke. Chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word. There's this person by the name of Theophilus, we'll talk about him in weeks to come, that he is writing to. And here's what he is basically saying, Theophilus, something amazing has happened in our world. Something amazing. And many have undertaken to draw up an account. In other words, there isn't, this isn't something as the King James Version says in Acts to the king by Paul. This isn't something that was done in a corner. By the time Luke is writing his account, this story about Jesus has expanded all the way out into the Roman provinces around the Mediterranean Sea. It's long past Nazareth. It's not a subterranean message. It's on Main Street. It's on every street. And it's coming to a street near you. Extra, extra, read all about it. And many are not only talking about it, they're writing about it. Many have undertaken, this is a happening. Something amazing is going on, and that's why there are so many accounts out and about. This Jesus thing that has happened to you has happened to many, and it's still happening. And then he describes it this way. He says, things have been fulfilled among us. You know what that means? This thing that's amazing that's happening has been foretold. Foretold. In other words, this was on the way long before it came your way. Do you know that God was doing something before you and I came along? Things have been fulfilled. The other versions say accomplished, tetelestai, same word Jesus used on the cross. When he said it's finished, it's accomplished. Paul says something amazing is happening. That's why everybody's writing. That's why it's all the way around the Roman Empire. That's why you heard about it. Things. What things? What things? As Jesus will ask his Emmaus friends as they're on a journey. What things? And they say the things about What's the main thing? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. They said, he was a man mighty in word and deed by God. And we had hoped. That's when they got the trombone on it and went, we had hoped. Cleopas and his friend, and they're with this mysterious unknown person. And you know what he does? He basically is saying, put your seatbelts on, guys. We're going to take a seven-mile walk, and I'm going to start with Genesis, go through the first five books, hit the prophets, and we're going to take a seven-mile walk where I'm going to unpack me in those books, Ollie. Ollie and I are neighbors. We live in the cosmopolitan town of Mount Savage. <laughs> we actually have a jail with a mannequin in the window. (laughs) And there's a Coke machine. There's a Coke machine down there. And from time to time, my my Michaela says, let's go down and get a jail Coke. If you're in Mount Savage, you know what a jail Coke is. But you know what? It's about seven miles from there to Cumberland, something like that. Imagine you and I, Jesus next to us on a seven-mile trip, and he explains to us the deep meaning of the Passover lamb and Abraham's uh, Mount Moriah experience and unlocks the bronze altar and the curtain and the table of showbread. Imagine seven miles of that. That's what he did. Isn't that cool? Things are happening because they're, they've been foretold. That's what's going on. God's been doing something. He's wrapped it all up and summed it all up in what is taking place in our lifetime. And then he says, verse 2, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first, 
from the very beginning of the whole Jesus thing, were eyewitnesses. They saw it. And servants, they sent it of the word, handed down, handed down by eyewitnesses. The way Luke is doing this thing called writing this out, and the way he did act, is exactly, now if you're a college student, really tune in here, is exactly the same way the noted historians in the ancient world did their accounts of the happenings in civilization. Richard Bauckham wrote a great book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. I highly recommend this book. It's nerdy, theologically nerdy, but it, it, if you can, it, it, that's why I love it. But anyway, <laughs> here's, what, here's what Bauckham says. In the best practice, advocated, for example, by Polybius, world-renowned historian, first century, the historian tells an interpretive story. In other words, it is, his, it is his interpretation, but only history and its factual pastness was allowed in the historian's interpretive story. So, Bauckham is challenging Bart Ehrman, chair of New Testament studies at North Carolina, who doesn't even believe it, and other scholars of higher criticism of the New Testament, and Bauckham is saying to the skeptics who make the argument that the gospel writers are fashioning an image of Jesus of Nazareth that's written from a distance that if you would go back to the real Jesus, you'd be shocked to find that he was only a Jewish carpenter who taught morality, got in trouble, pushing the envelope against the Roman authorities, meeting his arrest and execution. And he's not the Jesus of the Gospels. Bauckham says just the opposite. Because what Luke is doing is the exact same thing that the other historians did. Follow with me. Verse 3 and 4. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. That phrase carefully investigated everything in the Greek, that phrase is where we get the English idea of taking an autopsy, finding out the cause of death. Luke is using that terminology to say, that's how I've gone and investigated all this stuff. He's a doctor. He uses that terminology, and he is saying, I did that because I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And Luke is passionate about getting the story straight, accurate, and right, because it's the greatest story ever told, and he's doing it the right way. Here's what Bauckham says. Luke is doing exactly as the ancient historians such as Thucydides, Polybius, Josephus, and Tacitus. They were convinced that true history could be written only while events were still within living memory. And they valued as their sources the oral reports of direct experience of the events by involved participants in them. Take this point to heart. The first biography of Alexander the Great was written, the histories of Alexander the Great by first century historian, Roman, Quintus Sertius Rufus. The earliest surviving manuscript we have of Alexander the Great comes from the ninth century. Alexander the Great lived from 336 to 323 B.C. Bauckham's point is that Roman historians took the original eyewitness accounts transmitted in the name of those who recorded them got the historical record of Alexander, 
Oral tradition was highly valued as credible because most people couldn't read. So they had to get it right word for word. And people will say, well, you know, if I said to this person over here, I whispered in the ear and said something, by the time it got to the back and I had said to her, I am a stupid Pittsburgh Pirate fan, by the time it got back there, it would be Tim went to Pittsburgh and bought a fan. <laughs> Perhaps. That's how people think what took place that got Jesus from being a revolutionary to blah, 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 all these things. Opposite. Just like the Roman historians who weren't there for Alexander and didn't really write anything until the first century, 300-some years later, but had oral tradition carefully given out. Because they wanted to get it right. People couldn't read. That's how they did it. Same way, same way. So here's the point. If you're going to chuck Luke, you've got to chuck Alexander's stuff. Because he's doing it the same way. Now, I know there's a big difference. And the big difference is this. Reading and believing the account of the Gospels about Jesus, whether it's Matthew, Mark, John, or Luke, is of higher controversy because of the call made in those accounts. Even if you didn't start reading an account of the Gospel of Luke from a copy that's dated 400 A.D. and on, Let's just, just go with me here. Let's say you're living in 400 A.D., and you find an account of the Gospel of Luke. Here's what I think has happened in the world, unless I'm mistaken. There has been a deep effect of masses of people, let's just even say from that point, a fabricated story, a fabricated fable to refashion Jesus of Nazareth has changed morality for the better in multitudes of people, societies in which the gospel has circulated, coincidentally, has evolved to higher degrees of good in areas of benevolence and community health, and that's just the crumbs. I hesitate to go there at all because you really have to unpack that. I'm very oversimplifying it. But I'm assuming that there's a debate, and there is a debate. But you know what? People who didn't start reading these accounts, even in the, the copies that were maybe dated from 400 years after Jesus, they, a lot of them were saying the same things that people who are living in New York say, or in Africa today say, or in Europe say, or in Western Maryland say. Things like this, I've been freed from shackles and chains of darkness. After hearing what people say Luke said about what they say people said who say they saw with their own eyes. The things in that fabricated account that took place in Nazareth and Bethlehem and Capernaum and Bethsaida and Chorazin and the Decapolis and beyond the Jordan and Caesarea Philippi, and inside the temple, and at the place of the skull, and so forth, and on the Mount of Olivet, as they washed his feet, leave the earth, and then in the upper room, and then at the gate, beautiful, where a salty fisherman grabbed the man by the hand and said, in the name of Jesus Nazareth, rise up and walk, and he did. Anyway, stop me if I'm crazy. Don't try to stop me. If I'm crazy, I'm going to go on and crazy, because that same story touched my heart. I'm not as crazy as I was before I let that story really get a hold of me. And I'm not one great big love machine, but I love better now than I did in 1978 because that's when this story got a hold of me. I feel better now than I did as a 14-year-old kid battling depressive spirits. And I don't mean I dance up and down with joy 24-7, 365, but there's an old, old story that's brought me into a little bit more glory than I've had since I was a 14-year-old kid. Somebody ready to start having church with me this morning? I think there might be a few of you in the room today that say the same thing, that this fable inexplicably has done something in your life.
Interesting. Or you're watching, and you know that you should be giving God a little bit of a whole lot of bit of praise due to what the story has done for you. Because be of good cheer, he at some point in the time of your life called you to him. And you know what I else found out? Long before we got here, by the end of the first century, history records outside of Nazareth, all the way down to a place called Alexandria, Egypt, people were having the same thing. Rome, Italy, same thing. The barbarians north of the Aegean Sea started saying the same thing. The Germanic tribes, same thing. The old ornery Scots and Irish started drinking a new wine. And the Brits got a hold of the same story. It did something to them as well. Then those people came across on that ship they called the Mayflower with that book. And some of them, when they got on this land, got on their knees, some of them. And before the God of the seas and the skies, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Peter, James, and John, offered themselves to God and prayed to that God to bless this land for the glorious sake of the gospel. They made a covenant with him over that. But later, sadly, stay with me, sadly, tragically, others came with slaves chained like animals in the bottom of those boats. Tragically, when you mix political gain and greed with Christianity, you you produce slavery. Let me say that again in case you wondered what I just said. When you mix political gain and greed with Christianity, you produce slavery. But God, come on now. I said, but God. Just like he got a hold of Joseph in the prison of Potiphar. He got into the souls of the beaten and the battered peoples that were brought here against their will from the African continent. They were forced to change their names unjustly. They were forced to plant others' fields and reap what they could not enjoy unjustly. But God, anyone with me? You know what? Listen, God got them the book. Have you read the history? Have you watched it? And you know what took place? Songs of freedom began to form in the camps in night breezes under the magnolia trees. And those songs came out of their hearts once that book got in their souls. Praise God for the book. And the blood of some of those people cried out to God from the soil of this land the soil of this land. And God heard it. And surges of justice rolling like a river through the birth canal of parents moved upon Sojourner Truth and moved upon Harriet Tubman and moved upon the great rail splitter from Illinois and moved upon Frederick Douglass. And though they still had a long way to go, moved upon a young Jesus lover named Martin. I felt the Holy Spirit when I said that. And it's still moving today. We aren't there yet. How do you know that? But the book's here. And that's why I want to get back to the book. That's why I want to get the book as the main point of what we do when we gather in the house of the Lord. We don't want to lose Jesus in the house of his friends. This story is powerful for being a so-called fabrication of a moral Jewish radical revolutionary who met with an unexpected end. Interesting, huh? That the same powerful work happens in real power even 2,000 years later in real time. And it's similar to what happened to Zacchaeus. It's similar to what happened to the Roman centurion. 
It's similar to what happened to the citizens in Ephesus who burned their magic books and turned to God. After hearing the stories about Jesus, the story works in the lives of every tribe and tongue, pulling down kings, raising up the lowly to sit in high places. Theophilus and all of us, something's happening here. Something's happening here. Back to Luke. Back to Luke. Luke is saying, and listen, I'm going to write this out, and I'm going to give you all the details. Man, I'm going to give, Theophilus, I'm going to give you, and everybody who reads, all the details. Because that's what closely bonded Jesus friends do. They stay bonded. They keep all the details out there. I got to tell you this. He says, Pericolatheo, Pasacribos, Anathone, which means having investigated carefully everything from the beginning. I love this. I'm not sure if you love it as much as I love it yet. I've been, I've been getting ready for this for three months. But let me show you as we close. Let me show you. Let me just show you. Let me show you Luke's personality and passion in just a few passages. There's a few of them. You'll see. It's all through Luke, all through Acts. I just got to show you a few because it's all about the details. And you will never see Luke's gospel the same way again after I point this out. Details. Luke 1.5, just one place. In the time of Herod the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. And then in 11, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Listen, you know how he could have told us? He could have said, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, he did this awesome, powerful ministry, and before he did, there was this other guy that was a forerunner to him, and he was born, his dad was a priest, but he didn't do that because he wanted to bring details because he wanted to bring certainty to people. Paracolatheo, Pasacribos, Anathon, having investigated carefully everything from the beginning. He tells us when, in the time of Herod the king of Judea, there was a priest. And he goes, I know his name. Hey, if this story's going to be controversial, you have to have the facts, and you've got to go details. I know his name. Go check him out. And I know his wife's name. Oh, and he was a priest, but I know the division of the priesthood he was a part of. He was from the division of Abijah. And his wife, listen, listen, listen. I did uh, destiny.com, and I went back. I tracked her all the way back uh, uh, to Moses' brother. You with me? He could have, he could have said, oh, yeah, and, uh, they say that Zechariah saw an angel. But instead he said, an angel appeared to him, and he goes, and I want to tell you where he was standing. Are you with me? He was standing on the right side of the altar of incense. This man wants to say, this stuff happened, and I want to give you layers of it. Right side. Oh, and his name was Gabriel. Come on. Right? For me, it would have been enough. An angel? Yeah, he's right there. Oh, wow. But I know his name, too. I know his Facebook password. No, anyway. <laughs> Paracolatheo, Pasacribos, Anathon, having investigated carefully everything from the beginning. Can, can I give you two more? I'll give you two more. This one's good. I love this one. This one's in Luke 1. It's incredible. If you think about the context, it wows me. There was the prophetess, a prophet, Anna. He didn't have to say that. He just said there was this lady in the temple. She was, her hair was on fire for Jesus and the... Uh, before Jesus was even born. And then it tells the story. So it was a, her name was Anna. Oh, yeah, and she was the daughter of Penuel. And I know they're a Levitical tribe. Are you with me on this? Tribe of Asher. She, he didn't say she was an old lady. She was very old. Oh, yeah, and she, she had been married, 
and she, that, wouldn't that have been enough? She, would have been, she was married, but her husband died. We'd have went on. No. She lived with her husband seven years after marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. You're never going to read Luke again the same way. Guys, do you see that? And then he says, she never left the temple but worshiped day and night. We'd be like, well, she was a worshiper. No, let me tell you kind of worship, fasting and prayer. Are you with me in this? And she never left the temple. Do you see that? Could you have a better power to give you the gospel than, than Luke? He's our traveling companion, and he's telling us, shouting through the centuries, I want you to know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Coming up to them, verse 36 and 38, at the very moment she gives thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Now I want to give you my favorite. Luke 22. I can't help it. Luke, you just... All four Gospels mention Peter denying Jesus, right? All four. Poor Peter, he couldn't, he couldn't talk to anybody that wrote a gospel and leaving that part out. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all mention it. Three times they mention it. Three, they're all three in there. And it, but Luke is different. Luke, verse 61. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. Matthew says exactly the same thing. Mark says exactly the same thing. John says exactly the same thing, and only Luke says this, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. How do you know that? How'd Luke know that? Because he went back to the eyewitnesses and the servants of the word. He said, now, he must have said something like, man, when that rooster crowed, what was that like? He said, let me tell you what. Jesus turned and looked me right in the face, right in the eyes, and it broke my heart. Carefully investigated everything. Do you feel the passion of Luke and his desire to want you and I to know? There's this man named Theophilus who, he was a Greek God-fearer, and he got converted to Jesus, and in the early stages, the Christian church was still highly Jewish in its culture. And he's a Greek, and they had all kinds of trouble fitting in. They had, I mean, it took, it took years to get that thing right. And Luke is writing to Theophilus saying, listen, I am hoping to give you another block to add to the foundation of your faith so you can plant your feet in more certainty than you have right now because that's what fellow travelers on this Jesus kind of righteous journey do for one another. All right, so uh, Tim, you've been, we've, we've been in the first century. Dude, it's 2021. What do you got? Here's what I got. Jesus was born probably somewhere 6 to 4 B.C., and Paul is arrested and is probably martyred by at least 65, 66 A.D. Luke probably writes Luke 62-ish. It's debatable, but somewhere around there is pretty close. So what does that mean to us? Why did he write it? Why did he write it? So we would have a certainty. A certainty. Here's where we are. We're in the midst of perhaps the greatest need in our lifetime to meet a friend with the facts. So we can walk through the maze of political mania. Do you know that CNN isn't the only network that boasts to be the most trusted name in news? Media from all points and perspectives are telling you they're the most trusted. We also have a pandemic that's not only being explained by doctors and scientists, but by the guy down at the coffee shop. 
and the End Times prophet on Facebook wearing the marquee saying 80% of the people who take a vaccine are going to die. And I've been around long enough that I'm confused because I remember when Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist. And I also remember George Bush was, then Clinton was, then Obama was. Of course, we know Trump was. Now Joe is. Or maybe Bill Gates is. We need a friend to give us the facts. And you know what else we need to do? Here's a thought. Why don't we share things about Jesus instead of YouTube stuff about some prophet saying that they're wearing the marquee. Amen. Amen. Got two amens. The rest of you aren't coming back next week. <laughs> you know what people need right now? They need a Jesus story to happen in the midst of all this. Theophilus, who loves God, let me be accurate with you. Hey, listen, if there's ever a time to not anoint ourselves with the gift of suspicion and share it like it's straight from the voice of God, it's now. Knock it off. Knock it off. Knock it off. Do you know that there are people that God wants to use greatly that are marginalizing their ministry by planting their flag on something? that cuts half your audience out by one post you make? One post. We're, we're, acting, we're going to Iwo Jima planting a flag on things that aren't even important. And Jesus is lost in the house of his friends. Let's get accurate. If we got, whoops, almost fell over. If we, let's get accurate. Let's be accurate. And let's be compassionate. Let's give an unedited version of what the eyewitnesses and servants handed down to us, for it cost them everything, even their lives. Only if I'd have had a little bit more time and I could have figured out how to have a microphone for you, I was going to have you read this verse from Psalms 93.5. Lord, your testimonies are completely reliable. that work? And why we need to share this story accurately is because God wants to reach more Corneliuses, more Zacchaeuses, more Theophiluses, like he did all the way back then. Because you know what people need now? Same thing they needed in the first century. You know why? Because it's the same thing's going on. Pagans who've come to find out that their small GODs don't have anything to offer, and luck runs out, and fate is unpredictable. They needed what we need, a Savior who actually lived among the people and cared about people people don't care about. And He was with them, and He was crucified for them, and He was raised from the dead for them. And Luke tells all this with a conviction and a familiarity that brought assurance to Theophilus and continues to bring assurance to me and to you. And oh, think of the people right now whose sandy foundations are shifting and need to hear the story of Jesus from you and from me, our story that has power about the story that is all power. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me? I went a little long, but that's okay. I was born that way. Born again that way. Would you lift your hearts to God? Would you lift your hands to God? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that the Holy Spirit, the dove always rests on the shoulders of Jesus. The dove always rests on the shoulders of Jesus. And we've asked, we've presented Christ in the center of the candlestick today. And we know that the flame of your Spirit, the sevenfold Spirit of God, is burning today, feel it or not. 
Thank you for the price that people have paid to get the word to us. Pastors that were in the journey of every person in this room when we were kids, we were searching and seeking. We don't know what their family life was like. We don't know what kind of trouble they were in, but they gave us their best and they gave us your word and it touched us. Thank you for the faithful people in the, in the church, in the pews of the past and the seats of today that have lived an accurate, trustworthy witness like Zechariah and Elizabeth. And even in some of the areas of their life that seem barren, where they've given up their prayer, you were using them without them knowing it and orchestrating circumstances in their life to even bring a forerunner to the next move of God into the world. And you do the same today. For every person that feels like God's passed them by, they've grown too old to be relevant. For those today who are shaking because the circumstances are shaking all of us and nobody really knows anything except Jesus Christ and Him crucified and raised from the dead. I pray that your Holy Spirit would flow through this room, flow through uh, here to there where people are watching, and give them stability. Help them. All the Theophiluses that have already received you and those today that you're knocking, you're knocking right now and saying, why don't you let me come to your house and eat today, Zacchaeus? Why don't you let me come to your house? Listen, don't worry about your sins. Let's have a feast together and let me bring you out of darkness into light. That's what Jesus says. If that's you, here's all you have to do. You do this, you say, Jesus, remember me. Forgive me, cleanse me. I want you to come into my house. I want you to come into my heart home today and, and, just, and just come. I'm all, I got all kinds of stuff. I'm like that tax collector that you mentioned in the Gospel of Luke that didn't even lift up his eyes but just said, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus, you said that that guy went home from church that day justified in the eyes of heaven. Lord, I pray. It's that simple. I pray. And then that what you do is bring the power of the dunamis of the Holy Spirit with great conviction and assurance. And I pray you do it in this room. I pray you do it through the screen. I pray you do it in times yet to be when people are listening on a podcast, driving on some road, somewhere here, somewhere there. And you would meet them like you met Paul. You would meet them like you met Zacchaeus. You would meet them like the Roman centurion. And a mighty dunamis would take place in their life. The happening of Jesus would happen. And Lord, let the happening not only be in a room, not only be in a church gathering, but in the streets of Cumberland, the streets of the county, Lord, here, there, even the end of the earth. Make it so. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Let's worship.